Galatians chapter number 2 this morning, Galatians chapter number 2. While you're turning there, I want to give you just a very, very brief overview of my salvation experience as well as my experience of getting my heart and life right with the Lord. I got saved when I was five years old. My mother took me to a gospel crusade in Caldwell, Idaho. A man preached who was part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association by the name of John Wesley White. He was a man from Canada, kind of a a very, very different uh, gentleman, a little bit odd, so to speak. He was a mentor to Franklin Graham, and he, um, while I don't remember what he preached, I have had the opportunity to see him on YouTube preach some messages, and I will say this, uh, the man was very, very good at presenting a very clear, understandable uh, message of the gospel. And as a five-year-old boy, uh, we went the first night, I, I practically begged my mom to take me back the next night. She wasn't going to go back the second night. My grandmother, who was a godly woman, she said to my mom, you need to take him. And so the second night uh, during that uh, gospel crusade, I asked if I could go forward. Uh, We were in just really a a high school uh, baseball stadium is all it was in my mind. It was like Yankee Stadium. It just seemed like the field was way down there. I'm up toward the top of the bleachers. My mother said, son, you can respond, but you have to go down there alone. My mom was wise, and she didn't want me to just respond to what people were coercing me to do, and so she felt like that uh, with my nature that I wouldn't do that if I was just trying to get attention or if something else was going through my mind, if I meant business, that I would do that, and I didn't even hesitate. And I walked down all of those uh, steps, went out on the field, and one of the counselors met me. We bowed at a metal folding chair. He uh, opened up the Word of God, explained the gospel in details. I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Now, there was some confusion later on, and what is very, very typical for a young person getting saved at a young, at such a young age, there were times where I went forward and I wanted to make sure and so forth, but really, truly, I look back to that experience as a five-year-old, and I believe that that's when I truly accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Well, during my teenage years, I drifted far away from the Lord, and I got into a very, very strong life of sin in high school. Um, I won't go into the details as to why that happened, but the fact of the matter is, is I, I was very familiar with the gospel message. I was familiar with eternal security, but I wasn't familiar with the sanctified life or living for the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't understand the battle that every believer faces. And so after living in the world and living uh, just as as lost people would live, I spent a number of years with the Lord dealing with my heart, convicting me. Uh, numerous times, there, I knew that God had taken me behind his woodshed and chastened me. Someone said, how do you know when God chastens you? Listen, uh, anytime my parents gave me a whoop and I knew it. I never, I never had to say to, you know, the neighbor kid, you know, uh, what just happened? <laughs> I knew exactly what happened, and I knew uh, 
I knew what I had done, and sometimes, you know how it is, well, I didn't do it, and my mom was of the the parent style that it's like, well, this is for the times that you got, you got away with it. <laughs> so I knew I wasn't ever going to get one over on mom, and I appreciate that about her. Lord, tell her I said so. <laughs> but I was under conviction during those years, and... Um, the Lord was working, and God spoke to my heart just one month after I graduated from high school, convicted me. I said, Lord, no, not now. I, don't, I, I had plans, and um, I, I was going to uh, be involved in some sin that evening, and I was looking forward to it. And God spoke to my heart. He warned me. I brushed him off, and uh, that, uh, that day, that was a very, very tough day in my life. And God made it clear that, hey, I warned you, son, and I didn't take heed to it. And so I spent about a year after that, right after graduating from high school, under what I would call deep conviction. I got pretty miserable. And all the pleasures of sin that I had previously been enjoying and thinking that, oh, I don't want to live like this forever, but I want to enjoy what I can now, and I'll get right with the Lord someday it got to where the pleasures of sin, the season was over, as the Word of God says. The pleasures of sin are only for a season, and the season was coming to an end, and all I could really feel in my life was just the emptiness and the misery and the conviction, the condemnation that the Holy Spirit was producing in my heart. I was miserable, and I didn't know it at the time, but that was the best thing that could ever happen to me, was being miserable in my sinful condition, and somehow in my desperation, we were living in Weaverville, North Carolina, just north of Asheville, and uh, I was home alone. My parents were actually out of town. The conviction got so strong, I walked down into the woods, and there was a stump out there where I used to practice archery. I'd set my bow and my arrows on that stump, and I just got, and I sat down on that stump, uh, I don't remember specifically, I might have even knelt, knelt at that stump, and I remember pouring my heart out to the Lord, saying, God, I can't keep living like this. I don't, I don't remember what I said. I, I seems like maybe I said, Lord, if I'm not saved, then I, Lord, save me, but I just know I need to get right with you, and all I know is that something changed after that. My heart and my desires began to change, and I started wanting to do the right thing. And I still had some grave clothes, and I still had some sins that I was struggling with. And I went through about three months of just kind of kind of floundering a little bit, trying to do right, but still having some things from my high school years that were... It just seemed like I was oscillating back and forth in my Christian life. I was finding some great grace at times, but I was also finding some continued continual condemnation that, you know, I need to get rid of not just these overt sins, but there's some little sins that I need to get rid of as well. And I just started little by little following the Lord and yielding to Him. And as I would yield to Him, He would become more and more real to me, more and more powerful. And then in January of that year, about three months after I got right with the Lord, I bowed at my bed and I totally surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I presented my body a living sacrifice according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
Shortly after that, I struggled with doubting my salvation and assurance, and it's just like God had given me great victory, but I think all the confusion of memory. You know, I thought I was saved as five, and then God changed my life just before I turned 20, and then all of these good things were going on, but yet I found this struggle going on on the inside. And that's what I want to talk to you about here today, if you would. Galatians chapter number 2, stand with me as we read one verse in Galatians chapter 2, and this is what preachers like to call a springboard verse. We're not really good, we're, the text, the, the, the verse here is totally about the message, but it doesn't give a whole lot of details, but certainly it will um, spring us into the subject that I believe the Lord would have us talk about here today. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20, the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Notice the, the word am, it's present tense. It's not past, it's not future, it is a present tense thing. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to speak to you this morning on the paradox of two natures. Let's pray and we'll dive into the message. Father, thank you for the crucified life. Thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I look back on my own testimony in times of, Lord, times of you shedding light, times of confusion times of deception. And Lord, as I look at my life and my testimony, Lord, I wouldn't be able to make any sense of it if it wasn't for the doctrine of the Word of God. And I pray, Father, that each and every listener today that we would focus on the truth. Lord, our experience, our feelings can all deceive us, but Lord, the Word of God is true. It is the light and it's, Lord, it's the absolute fact that we need to live according to. And I pray that you'd help me to present this lesson, this message, Lord, with the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The paradox of two natures. What exactly is a paradox? A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. It just sometimes, if you look at it, what's being said, it doesn't make sense. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. That's a paradox. And it's important that we rightly divide the word of truth. We figure out what exactly does that mean. Is he talking about a physical crucifixion? Well, absolutely not. He's talking about something that has taken place spiritually in his life. And Paul is presenting here a spiritual concept regarding two opposing lives that we must understand. We've got to understand this two-nature principle in the Bible. There's, There's some famous Bible teachers that if I mentioned their name, you would probably recognize at least one of them, but some of them don't they deny that there are two natures in the life of a believer. And, and I've seen, uh, I've read and, and, and heard what they had to say and the Bible verses that they use. And 
Really, the fact of the matter is, they, they do believe in two natures. And it, a lot of it just comes down to semantics or word definitions. And certainly I can see where someone would say, no, there's not two natures. Really, we are just one man in Christ. And so there's, there's some confusing, opposing beliefs regarding this. But I think that every believer, if you've been saved any length of time, you know that your sin nature has not been eradicated. You know that temptation. And so if we could just at least forget about the arguments and the different perspectives, the fact of the matter is, if you're saved, you know that there is still a struggle with sin that goes on in your life. And it's not always from the devil tempting you. It's not always from being around the wrong crowd. It can come just out of the blue, from within. Because that nature is still in there. I, I believe that it's an undeniable fact. We need to understand it. And failure to understand this principle will inevitably cause confusion. And ultimately, it will cause failure in you living for God. Jesus said in John 3, in verse number 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's telling Nicodemus that, look, you were born of water. You came out of your mother's womb when that water broke. And incidentally, while I'm thinking about it, a prayer request for uh, Brother Hoffmeister's daughter in Guyana. She is 31 weeks pregnant, and earlier this morning, her water broke, and she is in the jungles of Guyana, and they don't have they don't have the medical attention that they need, and so we need to pray for her that uh, she'll have a healthy baby today. Good missionaries there in Guyana, but it's a water birth, the natural physical birth, and so. Jesus said, except a man be born of water and the Spirit. And I know what many, many intelligent Bible teachers say, that, that that being born of the water is being born of the Word of God. And I understand the cross-reference and the connection, but the context of John chapter number 3 is a contrast between a physical birth and a spiritual birth. I'm not minimizing the part that the Word of God plays in that. I just don't see that in the context of John 3, just like I don't see it in the reference in 1 Peter that we'll be taking a look at here in a few minutes. We have a natural man, and we have a spiritual man. And so that brings us to point number one. I want to talk about the natural man, the man that you and I were born with, our nature. Something changed in human nature, when Adam took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just that the length of his life all of a sudden was limited. Something happened within his nature. God said quite specifically, He said, The day that ye eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, physically, Adam lived over 900 years. He didn't take a bite of that fruit and fall over dead. He didn't even die later on that day. Physically, he was still alive, but something happened spiritual in his soul. 
He died. And that's why Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 1 says, You hath he quickened, made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We come into this life. We're born physically alive, but we come into this world spiritually dead. Our nature is not a good nature. All of the wickedness that goes on in this world. When God looked down upon uh, human nature in Genesis chapter number 6, it wasn't a good commentary. He didn't look down and say, oh, those people are so wonderful. I mean, the man that I have created, they have just, man, look at how good that they are. Look at how wonderful. They're just like me. No, he didn't say that. Now was he, I mean, he was the father of Adam, right? And Adam's children, you would think that there would be some resemblance, but the fact of the matter is, you don't see a whole lot of resemblance between any human being and a holy God. God looked down and he said the imaginations and the thoughts of their heart are only evil continually. And it was so bad in the days of Noah that God could only find Noah as being righteous before him. It says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It means Noah wasn't, uh, Noah wasn't sinless. But he found grace. Why? Because he was a righteous man and a preacher of righteousness. But the whole rest of the world was wicked. And God said, I'm going to destroy them. I wish that I would have never made them. That is what human nature is all about. And listen, God made a promise that he wouldn't destroy the earth with a flood again. But I tend to think... That if God were to look down, certainly upon America, I can't speak for all the other nations, but when I go into a public place and I see what's going on in America today, I can't help but feel that God doesn't look down in the same disgust. The man that he made to, for his pleasure and for his honor. That's what God created man for, is that we would bring him honor and glory, but we don't bring him honor and glory, we bring him shame. He looks down and he sees the adultery and the fornication and the deceit and the lying and all of the disgust. He looks down and he sees people doing more like what the devil's works would be than what God would have us to be. He created us in his image. And what's man been trying to do? Man's been trying to just try to bypass that image. God created them male and female. What does society do today? They want males to look like females and females to look like males. And some even want to look like cats. I know, you kind of chuckle at it, but you know what? It's not funny. And at the heart of that is basically man saying, you don't find men walking out their front door and getting in their front lawn and looking up toward heaven and shaking their fist and saying, I hate you, God. You don't find that happening. But the way that man lives is, in essence, shaking their fist and saying, God, we don't appreciate what you did. And that's the world that we live in. The natural man, according to the word of God, is corrupt. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 22 says, 
that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. The natural man's also referred to as the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Once again, the devil doesn't have to tempt you to sin. The book of James says that a man is enticed when he's drawn away of his own lusts. You don't have to be taught how to sin. You just have to be left alone. If somebody doesn't teach you how to be righteous, if somehow you don't get your conscience affected by the Word of God, man left left to himself is going to naturally figure out how to be selfish and wicked and dishonest and perverse and evil and violent. It's just going to happen. Because that is our corrupt nature. The natural man, according to the Bible, cannot please God. You know, all the religions of this world are saying, we have some different things that we can do. We have a list. We have some rituals. And if you'll do all of these rituals, then you'll be able to please God. And yet, we find that none of that seems to affect the conscience. All the religions of the world basically say you need to do this and you need to do that. That's not the religion of the Bible. That's certainly not the gospel religion. And we'll say more about that here in just a little while. The natural man cannot please God. Romans chapter 8 verse number 6 says, For to be carnally minded, that's the natural man. If you look at that word carnally, it's the same root word as carnivore. What's a carnivore? It's a meat eater. Meat is just the natural part of a body, of flesh, so to speak. And so to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Listen, God gave simple Ten Commandments. I know that there's a whole lot more things in the Bible that declare what is righteous and what is unrighteous. But if you just narrow it all down to Ten Commandments, man doesn't can't even keep ten. You know what? Let's just narrow it down like Jesus did to two. The two great commandments. Now, let's start with number two because we hear a lot about number two commandment in today's culture. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, the, the, the liberal, wicked world has no problem with that Bible verse. In fact, they like to use that Bible verse against Bible-thumping Christians who, don't, who, who believe that a man should be married to a woman. Or that unborn babies shouldn't be murdered. And they'll take and they'll use that verse against us. Well, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. I believe that we ought to love our neighbor as ourself. But the second great commandment means absolutely nothing without the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. Listen, I'm not going to understand the second commandment if I don't understand the first. That's why the liberals can use that because even God's children are ignorant. They're 
So many of God's people who profess to know the Lord are not loving Him with all of their heart. Listen, if you love God with all of your heart, you're going to love His book. And what His book says is going to determine what you believe. I don't have any problem with taking the Word of God and seeing quite clearly that it is murder to take the life of an unborn child. The Word of God makes it clear that even in the womb, that God knows that. And He acknowledged David before he, while he was still being fashioned in his mother's womb. I know that because the Bible says it crystal with crystal clarity. I also know from Old Testament and New Testament that homosexuality is an abomination to God. I didn't write the book. I just got saved by it, and I believe that this is the Word of God. And I happen to be one of the um, becoming minority of people who believe that God is smarter than me. And He knows more about me than I know about myself. And He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And He knows more about America. tell you what we need got an election in a few weeks, and hey, I hope it makes a difference. I really do. I hope that it will stem the tide of what we're seeing the last couple years in our nation. I hope it'll put some checks and balances there so that this liberal agenda will, will, will not gain any more stronghold than what it already has. I hope for that. But that's not my hope for America. Because you can change the laws, but if you don't change the nature in the citizens, man's never been able to obey the commandments of God until man becomes good, until we find something that's better than who we are. Man's not basically good. We're corrupt and we cannot please God. There is nothing good about the natural man. Romans chapter 7, verse number 18 This is spoken by the Apostle Paul, the same man that he said concerning the law of God, he said, I'm blameless. I can't say that. I don't think that you could if I asked you to raise your hand. Paul said, look, concerning the law, he said, I'm blameless. And yet, he said this about himself. He said, for I know that in me, notice the parentheses here, that is in my flesh, in my natural man. Now, I think the reason that Paul put that in parentheses is because as a believer, I don't want to get to my next point too soon, but as a believer, there is something good inside of me. It's Jesus Christ. But in my flesh, naturally, there is dwelleth no Good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. You just try to be holy and righteous and be perfect. You know, people say, well, nobody's perfect. God is. Heaven's a perfect place. Would you like to go to heaven? Me too. But you gotta be perfect. You gotta be sinless to go to heaven. I know I just shocked some of you. Like, what? I have to be sinless to go to heaven? God's not going to allow sin. If if we all go to heaven with this nature, 
Heaven's going to be, just give it a few weeks, <laughs> and heaven's going to be no different. If you took everybody in America today and moved them to Canada, do you think Canada is going to be any better? Any worse? And, and, and really, I'm not meaning to get political here today, but that's the problem with all these open borders. I'm not against immigration. I, you know, I, my ancestors probably moved over here from Scotland or England. And personally, I like being here better than Scotland or England. I'm okay with immigration, but open borders, just letting whoever wants to come in without, you know, it used to be that you had to kind of prove yourself worthy to come in. And now it's just whatever, whoever wants to come. The, the problem with that, and I believe this is kind of the, the devil behind the details, the problem is, is all those people coming in, it's just going to change the nature of our country. They're bringing their character, their perspective of, you know, they're going to enjoy the prosperity of America, but they're not going to, they're probably not going to change their ideals, the kind of things that made America what it is today. This is one nation under God. That's what made America. We, we think that it's our capitalism. Listen, capitalism has been tried in many other nations, and it's totally failed. Capitalism, democracy, what other nation has tried to pattern themselves after America in democracy and capitalism and has been as successful as America? None. You can't name one. Why? Because there's something behind America that's more than just our Constitution that has made us great. It's God. God's blessings. You know, those things that are just starting to do this. We got leftover blessings today. I'm, hey, I'm, I'm glad to have the leftovers, all right? But I will say this, that if we're eating God's leftovers here in America, there's not very many bites left on the plate. And it sure doesn't look like God's cooking up any new ones in America today. It just seems like more and more America is becoming more and more wicked. And um, we're starting to resemble uh, Sodom a whole lot more than we're resembling Jerusalem. Now God does not say in his description of the natural man that no one is refined or sweet or generous or charitable or honest or even religious. God doesn't say that man's none of those things. But he does say in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. You may be a sweet person. You may be honest. You may be a good neighbor. But if you're not righteous then you have a problem. The, na- the, the natural man has a lot of problems that we couldn't list all of them if we had all day today. Number two, I want to talk to you about the spiritual man. It's the other side of this paradox. 
Now listen, no life can come without parentage. All the perversion that we have going on in America today, men marrying men, women marrying women, and then whatever the other letters of LGBTQ+, whatever else letters we add to that, do what you want, say what you want, but you're not going to have life without parentage, and parentage is only going to happen with a mother and a father. Personally, I believe science is never going to get around that. They'll, they'll never get a high-tech test tube enough to actually, they may try. They're never going to create life. They can affect DNA and they can do all kinds of uh, amazing and crazy things. But you've got to have parentage in order to have life. There must be a father, there must be a mother. In the spiritual world, our Heavenly Father, we would say that the Holy Spirit is the Father, and the womb, we would say, is the human heart. That's where that birth takes place. The Holy Spirit speaking to the human heart into which the seed of the Word of God is placed through the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 23, it says, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever." The word of God and the Spirit of God must work together. The reason that I make that statement is because salvation is not merely education or academic. Listen, you can memorize the gospel, you can memorize John chapter number 3, you could pass any test about how to be saved and you could pass it with flying colors, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has taken that truth of the gospel and actually done something in your heart with it. It is a spiritual birth. Now, in our verse here, 1 Peter 1.23, we see a corruptible and an incorruptible seed. And once again, like I said regarding John chapter number 3, and I'm not minimizing the importance of the Word of God, the Word of God, the Gospel is a seed. But the seed or the corruptible or incorruptible in the context of First Peter 1 is not speaking of the Word of God, but it's speaking of the natural man versus the spiritual man. The natural man is corruptible, but the spiritual man is incorruptible. And that's why in the same context there, Peter says, for all flesh is as grass. He's talking about the Spirit of God birthing you into His family by the Word of God compared to the natural birth that is corruptible. The spiritual man is sinless. And let me give you a real controversial verse right here. 1 John 3, verse number 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Are you saved? If you're saved, raise your hand. All right. You don't commit sin. What? Wait a minute. I just did this morning. I yelled at my wife. No, I'm not me. I'm talking about you. <laughs> I didn't do that. Did I? I don't think I did. I was practically perfect. 
So wait a minute. I, th- th- how does that make sense? If that says I'm born again, but I don't commit sin, but I know that I've committed sin since I've been born again. Wait a minute. I'm confused. Well, let's read the rest of the verse. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Remember I said at the beginning of this that without the understanding of these two natures, without understanding this paradox, the Christian life is not going to make sense. We're going to be confused about Bible passages. We've got to understand that, hey, there is a spiritual man inside of us that does not sin because he's incorruptible. You can't corrupt something that's incorruptible. And so listen, yeah, as a saved man, I have committed sins, but the spiritual man inside of me has not. The spiritual man is Christ inside of you. Colossians 1, verse number 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. And yes, it is a mystery. Among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ask someone, are you, hey, are you, you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Oh, I hope so. I'm trying. Uh, then if you're trying and you're hoping based on your performance, I've got bad news for you. You're going to fall short. You're going to fall short of the glory of God. Our only hope of glory, of going to heaven, is Jesus Christ inside of us. That's why John said in 1 John 5, He that hath the Son hath life, but he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You're going to go to heaven if you have Jesus Christ inside of you, and if you don't have Jesus Christ inside of you, you're going to split hell wide open. I don't enjoy saying that has nothing to do with what degree of sinner you are. You may be a good sinner, you may be a bad sinner, you may be something in between. But the fact of the matter is, the only determining factor is going to be, is Jesus Christ in you. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have Him, then you don't have life. And the spiritual man is not a renovated life, it is a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is a, I've committed this one to memory. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I memorized that verse. I told you my testimony about getting right with the Lord just before I turned 20. And when I started experiencing it, listen, I really do believe I was saved at five. But my understanding as a child was so minimal. And as far as experiencing the Holy Spirit, I I believe that the Lord, while I was saved, I didn't experience the spiritual life until as with an adult understanding that I yielded my heart to the Lord. And that Holy Spirit of God, Jesus inside of me, I guess the, the best way I know to describe it, if I spent all of my teenage years, basically putting Jesus in the closet. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really want a fellowship with you. I want to live my life my way. You're inside of me. And, and there were times where I sensed that, and I knew that. 
There were times where he'd be speaking to me. There'd be times I'd come home after being out with friends and I'd lay there on my bed and I'd say, Oh Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. I'm never going to do that again. Where was that coming from? That was coming from Jesus inside of me. Maybe he was just opening the closet door and talking to me. By morning time, or certainly by the next weekend, I'd shut the closet door and say, okay, I'm going to go do my thing. But when I got right with the Lord, I said, Lord, I don't want you in the closet anymore. I want you in, I want you in the whole house. I want you to take over. Here, here's the keys, Lord. Where do you want me to stay? And it was then that I began to experience just that, I mean, just God doing that. I mean, I started moving closer up where these young men stand. These these are truly spiritual young men right here because they sit on the front row, right? I'll talk to your parents after church. But seriously, I used to sit there at the back and I'd try to sleep during church, stick my elbows on my knees and my Cheeks in my hand, and I'd try to take a nap because the preaching didn't mean anything to me. It was like, let's get this over with. There's a football game on after church, and I couldn't wait to get home. I'm glad my parents made me come to church. I'm glad I was at church whenever the doors were open. I wasn't at the time, but now I'm really thankful because I was still getting some in here. The Spirit of God was at least getting... Some nutrition probably kept me back from some really, really horrible sins and some really, really bad spiritual scars. But when I got right with the Lord, it wasn't like, I can't wait till this is over. I started getting closer and closer and closer. And I wasn't conscious. Even Brother Runyon, my father-in-law, he wasn't my father-in-law at the time. He said, Brother Randy, something's changed in you. Like he's up here. He said, when I'm preaching, you're actually listening. <laughs> you know, when, when I tell a joke, you laugh when I... <laughs> he had some really, really good... You talk about bad dad jokes, there's bad Brother Runyon jokes. <laughs> and I thought they were great. I thought, I thought they were funny, and I just... I, I didn't want church to be over. And I, and I go to work. And I'd be thinking, I'd have my green Gideon's New Testament in my shirt pocket. And I couldn't wait till break time so that I could read the Bible. And sometimes I would look, I would think about what was going on in my life. And it was like there was one side of me going, Mitchell, what's got into you? And the other side is saying, wow, this is great. You know what that was? That was the natural man inside of me saying to the spiritual man, what is going on? That was that paradox, that conundrum that I didn't understand what was going on, but I was sure glad that it was happening. The spiritual man then is entirely different from the natural man and opposed to him in character, temperament, and disposition. And if you give me a few more minutes here this morning, I want to talk to you about number three, and that's the regenerated man. You see... The regenerated man is really a combination of the natural man and the spiritual man. This is the paradox of the two separate men spoken of in the scriptures. The old man, the new man, 
the natural man, the spiritual man. Uh, the, the Bible sometimes refers to it as the inward man or the inner man. Somebody pointed out to me that I was talking to you ladies here a couple of weeks ago and talked about your inner man. You misunderstood me. I was talking about Jesus Christ inside of you. Not like, you know, people talk about men getting in touch with their feminine side. What is that? I mean, I don't think I have one, but I hope I don't have a feminine side. I, I'm glad that I was born a boy and became a man. It's a, I'm not ashamed of that. Nowadays, I think you're supposed to be. I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't get it. But there is an inward man. There are two separate people living inside. And I'm talking to you as a believer. If you've never been regenerated, if you're not born again, a lot of this teaching, you're kind of going, I don't even really get what you're saying. If you're saved, you know what I'm talking about because you've experienced it. That conflict inside. These two men make up in the believer two different natures, but listen, only one personality. We're not talking about being schizophrenic here today, although the struggle between the two natures will sometimes make us feel a little bit schizophrenic, but it's still just one personality. Listen, my old man and my new man, it's still Randy Mitchell. It's still just one personality, and that's kind of that confusion that sometimes we have to understand what the Bible teaches. Our personalities are unique, but our natures are universal. One is Adam, and the other is Jesus Christ. I have two men living inside of me, Adam and Christ. The first Adam and the last Adam. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm almost finished, so ladies, don't worry about that roast in the crock pot, okay? It's just going to simmer just a little bit more. It'll be more tender. You'll thank me later. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 45, it says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. All right, that's Adam, the one in the Garden of Eden. The quickening spirit, that's Jesus Christ. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but after, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. Now, let me, uh, let me just pause, call a time out right here, okay? This scripture says that the spiritual didn't come first, the natural came first. Now, I'm not going to try to to throw a wrench in your sentiment, but when you go to a funeral or if you have a lost one that passes away, all right, another angel did not go back to heaven. I'm sorry, that's just not true. I know what you mean by it. You mean that I love this person, they were so wonderful, and so now they went back to heaven. Listen, that's that's reincarnation, that's Mormonism. Listen, we didn't come down to be born physically because we were spiritual children up in heaven. That's maybe emotional sentiment, but it just ain't so, all right? 
you and I did not start to exist until we were born physically. If you believe otherwise, then you certainly you don't believe the Bible. You might as well just take that page and rip it out because the first man was the natural man. Verse 46, Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Verse 48, As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. There we have it right there again. Corruption, incorruption. Natural man, the spiritual man. Adam, Jesus Christ. There are two natures that are diametrically opposed, fighting for the possession of the same body, like two tenants fighting for the possession of the same dwelling house. Listen, husbands and wives, if you've ever had a struggle in your home for who's going to control the house, you know what? It's the same thing going on inside of your body and your life. One wants control, the other one does, and it's going to create a conflict. And by the way, Christian... Giving in to your flesh is never going to stop the warfare. The devil will tell you that. It's like, you know what, I'm tired of battling, saying no to this temptation. If I just give in a little, then it'll leave me alone. It'll be satisfied and I can move on. No, it'll want a little bit more. And then you'll say, well, I'll give it just a little bit more and then I'll have peace. A little bit more and then I'll have peace. And guess what happens then? Now you have the Holy Spirit of God, the new man inside of you, saying, being grieved and being miserable and convicting. It's like, okay, I either deal with temptation or I deal with guilt. As a believer, the two men are inside. They're going to battle one way or another. You can't give in to one and expect the other to not be fighting for possession of your house, your body, so to speak. Galatians 5, verse number 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that she cannot do the things that she would. It's not just a matter of willpower here, folks. You can try to do right. You're going to find that there's something inside of you that's holding you back. And then you try to go do the wrong thing and you're going to find that there's something inside of you, the Spirit of God, that's trying to hold you back from that as well. You might as well just yield to God because ultimately what's done in this flesh, it's all going to go to the ground and the only thing that is incorruptible and eternal is the Spirit of God inside of us. Romans chapter number 7. Turn with me, if you would, Romans chapter number 7. A few more verses and we're done. Romans chapter 7 and verse number 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, 
that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If you're a Christian, you know what Paul's talking about. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. But then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in my flesh, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And Paul says this, and I feel, I've felt this at times, I know that you have as well. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We have the natural man, we have the spiritual man, and the regenerated man is this paradox, this conflict between the two. And this message today is for understanding, and there's many things that we could talk about. Maybe next week we'll talk about victory how that we can walk with the Lord and be spiritual. But the fact of the matter is, we need to understand that there is indeed a conflict. In conclusion, I want you to see verse number 25. After Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He says this, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to deliver you from the body of your death? Jesus Christ is. He's the only deliverance that we have. In Titus chapter 3 and verse number 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There was a bunch of people in the jungles who loaded up a Cessna 206 and tried to take off from this little jungle airstrip. The pilot had done this many times, and they were certain that they would clear the huge trees at the end of the short runway. He had the throttle full forward as they taxied down the strip. Apparently, the passenger that was sitting right next to the pilot panicked. As he saw the looming trees rushing toward them, terrified that they were going to crash, he tried to help. So he grabbed the flight controls and he pulled back. His intentions were good, but it doesn't work that way. You have to build up some airspeed before you point the nose of the plane skyward. Otherwise, the engines will stall. The plane pitched up, lost critical airspeed, and began to roll toward the jungle. The pilot wrenched the controls back and desperately tried to get the nose back down, but it was too late. The plane stalled, the engine pulled the nose over sharply, and it spun back to the earth and crashed into the trees. When I think about that story, I think about the Christian life. Jesus Christ is the one that should be piloting our life. He knows how to get us. We're going to have some scary times. 
We're going to have some times where temptations and sins are going to try to get the best of us. There are going to be times where it's not going to feel like that Jesus has our life under control. But I tell you what, He is our pilot. And He knows how to get us safely there to heaven if we'll just sit back and trust and let Him get us there. Yield to Him. Live after the spiritual man. Let Him have preeminence in your life. Follow Him and trust Him and serve Him. Don't, don't take the, the, this teaching as an excuse for sin, but rather see it as a means by which through Jesus Christ we can have victory over that sinful natural life that we come into this world with. Our opening text in Galatians 2 and verse number 20 ended with this, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you're not saved here today, you've never experienced the power of Christ and of the Holy Spirit changing your life from the inside, giving you new desires that you could never muster up before that's honestly you, then you need to be born again. Or as Jesus said, ye must be born again. But if you're saved, you've no doubt experienced this paradox. These two natures that live inside of you. You know what you need to do? You need to do the same thing that I did as a 19-year-old young man. And you need to start living for Jesus Christ. And allowing Him to have control and to pilot your life. You must choose which life you will allow to live. Will it be Adam? Or will it be Jesus Christ? I'll tell you something about Jesus. He wants to have full control of your life. Because He's the one that's worthy. And He's the only one that knows how to pilot you. It all comes down to trust. Do you think that there are sins or directions in your life? You think that, well, if I give up control to Him, He's going to ruin my life. It means I'm going to be, have to be in church seven days a week. I'm going to have to go out with those idiots on the street and hold up signs and pass out tracts. I'm going to have to quit doing this or quit doing that. Listen, if, that's, if you're saved and you're thinking that way, I'll tell you what you're doing. God, God has a has a banquet for you, and you're saying, I can't give up my hog slop. Or as Brother Rogers so eloquently sang last week, one more night with the stinking frogs. It's the way Pharaoh felt. You know, that's a really, that's a really truthful song if you think about it. It's fun, but it's like, wow, there's a lot of truth to that song. The old man is not going to want to turn loose. And let the new man have control. But if you will ever come to that point like I did, and like many of you have, you're going to look back and you're going to go, what a fool was I. Why didn't I do this sooner? Because Jesus Christ is the only victory that we have over our old nature.